great to see all of you today. And again, happy Father's Day to the dads here and the grandfathers here. You guys are a blessing to your families, I'm sure. And I hope that your day is filled with great food, maybe a solid nap for you, a round of golf, whatever it is that is life-giving for you. I hope that that is what your day is filled with today. But God bless you for being at church and starting this Father's Day off in the house of the Lord and setting that example for your family. The title of our sermon today here in Galatians chapter 2 is Not a Different Gospel. Not a Different Gospel. So if you're a note taker, you can jot that down in your scripture journals. Not a Different Gospel. Now verse 1 as you notice, begins with the word then. Then, after 14 years, Paul writes. And this, of course, tips us off to the fact that what we're reading today, what we just read, is a continuation from what Paul was talking about last week. In other words, it's a continuation of the autobiographical section of this letter, meaning Paul's uh, telling of his own life story. What he describes for us here in these first 10 verses of chapter 2 is known as his second Jerusalem visit. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we studied the text where Paul talked about how after three years from his conversion, he went down to the city of Jerusalem, and he talked about how he only stayed there for about two weeks. It was a very limited time of ministry in the city of Jerusalem. But now we're reading that about a decade later, he made a second trip down to Jerusalem, and he's going to describe that visit for us. Now, why did he go back to Jerusalem after some 14 years? What was the point of that? Well, the text here tells us that he went because of a revelation that he received. Not clear what the revelation is that he's referring to here. Um, It could be a personal revelation that he had. Obviously, the Apostle Paul was a man who experienced direct revelation from Jesus. And so it could have been the Lord saying, you need to go down to Jerusalem. It's also possible that Paul here is referring to the revelation from Agabus, who was a prophet, in Acts chapter 11. I'll read this passage for you. It starts in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in Acts chapter 11, you've got Saul and Barnabas, who are the same people here in Galatians 2, being sent from the church at Antioch down to Jerusalem to deliver a collection of money that the the churches had uh, accumulated to go and give relief to the churches in Judea, down in Jerusalem. I'm of the opinion that this Galatians 2 trip to Jerusalem is this famine relief trip. And so it seems to me that Saul or Paul and Barnabas were headed down to Jerusalem to deliver this money to the church there. But not only did they deliver money to the church, we find out that on that journey here in Galatians 2, they had another objective in mind. On that journey of bringing this money of relief to the church in Jerusalem, we read that Paul and his team had a private meeting with, according to verse 2, those who seemed influential, who Paul later identifies as Peter, James, and John in verse 9. And in this meeting, what does he do? Verse 2 tells us, he set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles 
in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says that while they were there delivering this money, he had a private meeting. Him and Barnabas and Titus had a private meeting with James and Peter and John. And in that meeting, he was setting before them the gospel that he had been preaching. Now, this is remarkable for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because if you were with us last week, you'll remember that Paul went to great lengths in chapter 1 to create distance between himself and the apostles in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And his reason for doing that was because he wanted to make the point to the Galatians that the gospel that he had preached, the gospel that he had, was not a gospel that he received from these apostles. It was not man's gospel. It didn't come from humans. It came directly from the Lord Jesus. That's where his authority and his message came from. Not only that, but we notice that he's been preaching this gospel effectively for over a decade now at this point. Right? Verse 1 said, then after 14 years, he went up to Jerusalem. So he's been preaching this gospel for over 14 years. And now he's saying that he's going to go down and he's going to set it before the apostles in Jerusalem. So the question becomes, is he now at this point in his ministry concerned that maybe he had it wrong? That the gospel that he had been preaching was potentially a flawed gospel? Certainly not. As I just mentioned, he spent chapter 1 explaining that he had gotten his gospel directly from the Lord Jesus. In fact, he went so far, you'll remember, as to say that if anybody changed the gospel that he had preached and that the Galatians received, let that person be anathema. Paul was not confused about whether or not his gospel was authentic and true. What he means here then, when he talks about wanting to make sure that he was not running in vain is not that he's, he's worried about his gospel's accuracy, but rather that he's worried about his gospel's effectiveness. Let me say that again. He's not concerned about his gospel's accuracy. He knows it's accurate. He's concerned about its effectiveness. As you know by now, false teachers, often referred to as Judaizers, are claiming that Paul has deviated from the gospel of the OG apostles, right? The big three, these, these giants, these pillars, he calls them, in Jerusalem. And so these false teachers have crept into the churches and they're saying, look, Paul, his gospel's different than the original gospel. His gospel is not the same as the original gospel. And they want to say, again, that, that he has deviated, that his gospel is not in step with their gospel. They're arguing that Paul had been undermining the gospel of the Jerusalem apostles. Now, the churches in Galatia are not Paul's first encounter with these Judaizers. They have basically been following Paul's ministry from day one, trying to undermine his church planting efforts everywhere he went. And after about 10 years, while he's in Jerusalem to deliver this financial relief to the churches, he takes the opportunity to share his gospel with the pillars of the church so that he can defeat the claims of these agitators. And now, as they've infiltrated his churches in Galatia, he sends this letter and he points back to that very important meeting to once again defeat their claims and shore up the confidence of the Galatians in the gospel that he had preached and they had received. So effectively, Paul is saying, 
oh, these false teachers are saying that my, my gospel's different? These false teachers are telling you that my gospel is a deviation? That it's somehow deficient from the true gospel? Not a chance. And he's going to offer three proofs in this section that his gospel is not a different gospel from the gospel of the Jerusalem apostles. The first proof is found in verse 3. And it's this. The apostles did not force Titus to be circumcised. The apostles did not force Titus to be circumcised. Look at verse 3 again. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now family, this is hugely significant. This is massive, that they did not demand that Titus be circumcised. The Judaizers are telling these Galatian Christians that, again, Paul's gospel is incomplete. They're telling these Galatian Christians that you need Jesus Plus, you need to become Jewish. You need to um, adopt the Jewish law, the Torah. You need to come under that. So practically speaking, that means that the males who convert to Christianity need to be circumcised. You see their view spelled out in Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So do you see the argument there? The Judaizers are coming and they're saying, unless you are circumcised, if you're a male, you can't be saved. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus, again, becoming Jewish. So you can see that for the Apostle Paul, circumcision is not incidental. Today, circumcision, of course, is a cultural or familial preference. If you have a son born, the doctor or nurse is going to say, would you like to schedule a circumcision? They don't care if you do or not. It's totally up to you. It's a preference thing. But obviously at this point in history, there were those in the church who were saying, circumcision is a salvation thing. If you want to be saved, you have to become Jewish. You have to adopt the law of Moses. Otherwise, you cannot belong to the people of God. And so here is Titus. Titus is a Greek. His mother and father are Gentiles. They are non-Jewish. So he has no Jewish blood in him. And he's set before the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem. And the question is posed, what about Titus? Does he in fact need to be circumcised? And their answer is an emphatic no. He does not need to be circumcised. This devastates the argument of the Judaizers. Again, they've been saying Paul's gospel is wrong. You have to be circumcised. And now the Jerusalem apostles say no to circumcision for this Gentile. Now, verses 4 and 5 are really tricky in the Greek. It's a very funny instance in the writing of Paul where Paul begins a sentence that he doesn't finish. Like he starts a sentence and then he just kind of like moves on to something else halfway through the sentence. So if you have a habit of doing that, Be encouraged, you're in good company. Even the great Apostle Paul started sentences that he didn't finish. But it seems that his point in verses 4 and 5 is this. That the question of whether or not Titus needed to be circumcised was brought up because of these false brothers who were secretly brought in. We see that in verse 4. And so Paul takes this opportunity 
to make sure that he and the Jerusalem apostles are on the same page. He's going to say, are we going to walk in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ? That all can be saved simply by placing their faith in Jesus Christ? Or are we going to revert back to slavery again by bringing ourselves under the Torah, under the law of Moses? That's the million dollar question for Paul. And you're going to see this over and over again in the book of Galatians. What's at stake here is freedom in Christ or slavery to Torah and to the requirements of the law. Now to be clear, and this is so important because many Christians wrongly assume that Paul had a negative view of the law. To be clear, Paul did not have a negative view of the law. Paul sees the law of God as a good thing. He's going to cover this actually in chapter 3. The law is, a, is from God. It is good. But the problem with the law for the Apostle Paul and for us as Christians is not that it's bad. The problem is that it's limited. The law of God, the law of Moses, was never put in place so that you and I could be righteous enough to stand before God. Nobody can achieve the righteous standards of God through obedience to the law. It could never make us righteous enough. The law instead existed to do two things, to restrain sin and to expose sin. Let me explain. The law restrained sin. Before the law was given, people were sort of up to their own judgment to determine what was wrong and what wasn't wrong. And sometimes you would go out and just do wrong things and you would be ignorant to that. But the law comes and it tells you very clearly these are the right things, these are the wrong things, and there are punishments attached to the wrong behavior. And that becomes a deterrent for sin. Sort of like speeding tickets or parking tickets, right? I can't be the only one who when driving down the road and there's no traffic in front of me and I'm trying to get somewhere in a hurry, if there wasn't that pesky little speed limit sign, I would just do my own speed, whatever I felt was safe enough for me and effective to get me where I wanted to go. But when I'm driving, I see that speed limit sign and I know that there are police who are watching what I do and I know that if I really push it, I might just get a ticket and it restrains my bad behavior, I guess you could say. Same thing with parking tickets. I need to get in somewhere, especially downtown, and I'm in a hurry, and I'm circling around the block, and it's like, uh, I could just park right here, even though it says you can't park here during these hours and these hours. I could, I oh, no, I don't want to do it, because I don't want to pay a parking ticket, and it restrains my behavior. That's the way the law works. The other thing it does, though, is it exposes our sin, so it restrains sin, and it exposes our sin. Like I was saying a moment ago, without God's law being spelled out for us, we would all be left to trying to understand what is actually right and wrong on our own. But God's law is there. And it tells us what is sinful. And then when we transgress against God's commands, now we know that we have sinned. In this way, the law points to our need for a Savior. This is what Paul's going to talk about in Galatians 3. That the law is going to function like a guardian on one hand that keeps us in check, that helps us to know what to do. But on the other hand, it functions like a tutor who ultimately points us to Christ and says, you need a Savior because the law has proven that you're a sinner. And so Paul is now saying, the Savior's here. He's come in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we can have freedom now 
to truly be the people of God. We can have freedom from the fear of guilt and condemnation and judgment. And now we can walk in freedom, free from that sin, free from that guilt, free from that shame. Not only that, but in Christ we can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that now we have God's power so that we actually can obey the law. And not just obey it out of a slavish fear, but obey the law out of the freedom of love and complete acceptance. So this is what's at stake for Paul. This is what's on the line. Again, it's two options. We either in Christ have freedom, or we desert Christ and we bring ourselves under the law again and we're enslaved to that system. Paul wouldn't yield for even a moment on this point. And he tells us why in verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And thank God he didn't yield. Because you and I as Christians who have put our faith in Jesus Christ get to live in the freedom that is ours in Christ. So their decision is this. Circumcision had no significance for salvation. None. Now it was only culturally significant. There's an important lesson here. The apostles are aware and okay that Jewish Christians are going to circumcise, going to continue to circumcise their boys. And that Gentile Christian converts are not. They know that's what's going to happen and they're okay with it. What I'm trying to say is that cultural assimilation is not necessary for Christian unity. This is huge. The apostles are saying the Jews are going to continue living in their Jewishness. The Gentiles are going to continue living in their Gentileness. The thing that's going to unify us is the gospel that we share together. And this is significant. I want you to consider Islam by way of contrast as an example here. Wherever Islam has taken root and begun to be practiced, there's a level of uniformity in the law, Sharia law, in the language, Arabic, in the dress of people, in diet, halal food, in architecture, etc. There's a a flattening, that culture goes out wherever Islam goes. Christianity, on the other hand, is transcendent of culture. And this is because Christianity comes from God and not from man. All cultures have aspects of them that are beautiful and praiseworthy because all people are made in the image of God. At the same time, all cultures have blind spots because all people are sinners and are flawed. So Christianity doesn't idolize or prioritize one culture over another culture. The Jews, again, would maintain their Jewishness. The Gentiles would maintain their Gentileness. And this is why as you look at Christianity as it's spread throughout the world, what you find is that Christianity is multicultural. You will find Christians all over the world who have different languages, who dress differently, who worship in different ways and shapes and forms, with different music, different architecture, different cuisines, etc., etc. Christian unity does not come through imposing a culture upon other people. Christian unity comes again through the gospel. And it works within every different culture in the world. So the Judaizers said, 
that the Jerusalem church requires circumcision. Paul proves that they don't. That's proof number one in the text. He didn't have a different gospel. The second proof is in verse 6, and it's this. The apostles added nothing to Paul's message. Look at verse 6. He says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now notice again that Paul is using this like roundabout way of talking about the big three, Peter, James, and John. It, it almost sounds like he, he's a little bit disrespectful or maybe doesn't have a positive view of these apostles. Is that what's going on? Well, the answer is no. The reason why Paul is speaking this way is not because he doesn't respect the apostles in Jerusalem. He does. Rather, he's speaking this way because the Judaizers idolized these apostles in Jerusalem. So what Paul's doing here is he's using their perspective. He's, he's saying those who seem to the Judaizers to be so influential, he's saying none of that really matters to me. Their status, their reputation, their past experiences, none of that matters to me because none of that actually matters to God. God shows no partiality on all those external things. That's what Paul's saying here. What matters is their faithfulness to the gospel in belief, and as we're going to see next week, in practice. This is actually a helpful reminder that spiritual leaders are to be respected, not worshipped. Spiritual leaders are to be respected, not idolized. And we live in a day and age where there are very prominent spiritual leaders, very prominent pastors. And on one hand, their great influence is a good thing. That's wonderful that they have so much influence in the world. But we just have to be careful, again, to not idolize these people, to understand that these people are humans, that they're sinners, that they're flawed. And so we respect spiritual leaders, but we don't do what the Judaizers are doing. We don't idolize them. We don't set them up on a pedestal as if they are the ultimate voice from God. Nevertheless, we know that Paul did respect these men. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he writes this, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul could look at these apostles and on one hand say what he's saying in Galatians, that, hey, whatever they are doesn't make a big difference to me. God doesn't show partiality. And yet on the other hand, he looks at these guys and he says, look, if there is a pecking order, those guys are way up here and I'm down here because of who I am and what I've done. He was aware of his own shortcomings and sins. So he respected these men, and these were amazing men of God. But here's the key. They added nothing to Paul's gospel. Paul sets his gospel before the Jerusalem Three, and he, he tells them, this is the gospel I've been preaching. And they don't go, you know what? You've got it about 80% right, Paul. You're just missing, missing circumcision. Or you've got it about 90% right. You just got to add these other couple of things. Paul's saying they added nothing to me. In other words, there was complete agreement before the gospel that I'd been preaching for over a decade and the gospel that they were preaching. There was no discrepancy whatsoever. In effect, me gospel, esu gospel. That's what's going on here. And so this is huge. Again, the Judaizers are telling the Galatian Christians Paul's gospel is off. He doesn't have the whole thing. And Paul's able to tell them, I went and shared my gospel with the big three in Jerusalem. They added nothing to my message. It's huge. 
Third and finally, the third proof Paul gives that his gospel, although he didn't get it from these apostles, it was no different from the apostles, is this. Verse 9, the apostles gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. He says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Because they perceived the grace that was given to Paul. They affirmed his message and they affirmed his apostolic ministry. Now, what did they mean that they had perceived the grace that was given to Paul? Well, they were referring to a decade of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That when they looked at Paul's personal testimony, once a persecutor of the church, once a hater of Christians, and now they had seen over a decade of faithfulness and loyalty and devotion to Jesus Christ, they were able to say, that's the grace of God at work. That's the grace of God at work. Not only that, they were able to see over a decade of faithfulness to the truthfulness of the gospel. That Paul would not waver in the slightest year after year out preaching the gospel in frontier missionary efforts. That he would not compromise the gospel at all. He defended it tooth and nail. They're seeing it happening right here in this meeting. And they're saying, that's the grace of God. His unwavering commitment to the truthfulness of the gospel, that's the grace of God at work in Paul. Finally, they were able to see over a decade of fruitfulness in his ministry efforts. Titus is just one of many examples of the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry that he was out over a decade preaching the gospel in Gentile lands and people were coming to Jesus. And they're able to look at that and say, that work is the grace of God. And so as they perceived the grace of God at work in Paul and at work in Barnabas and at work in Titus, what did they do? They gave them the right hand of fellowship. And in doing so, they were essentially validating everything that he had done for the last decade. And they were placing their hands of blessing on them and sending them out to continue in the same direction. They say to Paul and his team, you go to the Gentiles You keep doing what you do, and as you do, continue showing concern for the poor. That's verse 10. And of course, Paul says that was something he was eager to do. In fact, as I pointed out, that was the very reason he was in Jerusalem for this meeting, was because he cared for the poor. He was delivering money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul says, of course, I'd love to. That's what I'm eager to continue doing, showing care and concern for the poor, because Paul knew, as all Christians know, that God's heart is for the poor. And in the ancient world, the poor not only meant your socioeconomic status, but it meant those who were most vulnerable, those who were oftentimes oppressed. And God's heart has always been for those who are vulnerable in any community. The poor, minorities, um, immigrants. These are the people whose God's, God's heart is always for. And the apostles are saying, make sure we don't lose focus on that. Good word for us today. In effect, this meeting ends with, this is awesome, I love this, with one unified church. Okay, there's unity here. So there's one unified church, but with two complementary missionary focuses. Do do you see that in the text? They say, 
Paul, we're in perfect agreement here. We have the same gospel. We're giving our blessing to you. We're all in agreement here. We are one church. But Paul, you go to the Gentiles. You're the apostle to the Gentiles. And Peter, you go to the Jews. You're the apostle to the Jews. And what's awesome about this is that their ministries are going to have unique flavors. And they're going to contextualize in different ways. And they're going to have different philosophies of ministry. When ministering to Jews, they'll be sure to not unnecessarily offend Jewish sensibilities. When ministering to Gentiles, they're going to sacrifice some of their Jewish traditions and customs. When reaching Jews, they're going to go into the synagogues and they're going to instruct the Jews from the Old Testament scriptures. When they're evangelizing the Gentiles, they're going to go into marketplaces and riverbanks and they're going to draw on secular philosophers and pagan worship practices. And that's okay. And this is so instructive for us as a church today. When you look at the landscape of Christianity globally, what do you see? You see many different denominations. And as I mentioned earlier, you see a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multilingual church all across the world. And it expresses itself and practices its faith unified around one gospel, but in different particulars from culture to culture. And that's okay. We can celebrate, rejoice in, and partner with other churches in the mission of God that look different, that emphasize different things, that strategize differently from us as long as we agree on the gospel. That's the centerpiece. That's the thing that matters most. And churches become unhealthy and destructive and contentious when they look at all of the forms, all the externals about the way we do church, our music styles, the way we've all come in and dressed today, our architecture, the flow of our service, I mean, all of these things, and we start making those things, thus saith the Lord, and expecting other churches to do it the way we do. No, we want to contextualize for Santa Barbara. We want to do ministry here in a way that makes sense. But the way that's going to look in Mexico City might be different. The way that that's going to look in Africa is going to be different. The way that's going to look in the Philippines is probably going to be different. Or in China. And that's okay. As I mentioned, Christian unity is a unity around the gospel. And so we can again celebrate and rejoice in and partner with churches that look very different from us. So long as we agree on the gospel. Okay, let's bring this sermon to a close. That's the first time many of you have felt like saying amen this entire time, and that's okay. Here's the conclusion. Here in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is agonizing over these churches that he loves so much, and the reason why he is agonizing over these churches is because he knows that many of these believers are on the verge of deserting the one true God, by accepting and receiving a distorted gospel. And Paul knows that any addition to the gospel is a fatal subtraction. And so, the Apostle Paul pronounces an anathema on anybody who would seek to change the one true gospel. And Paul knows that he received the gospel not from any person. He received it from a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. 
But although it didn't come from the Jerusalem apostles, it was in perfect agreement with their gospel. All that to say that what Jesus had personally revealed to Paul was the same thing that Jesus had personally revealed to Peter, James, and John. There was one true gospel. And this, my friends, is the one gospel of grace that has been handed down to the church. It's the good news of the grace of God that has come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was fully God and fully man. He was righteous for us. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And he was raised to life for us. And it is by faith and faith alone, not faith plus some work, whether that's baptism, whether that's communion, whether that's getting your life right, whether that's the law of Moses. It's not faith plus anything. It's by faith alone that you and I and every other person on planet earth can share in his righteous life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious resurrection and enjoy eternal life in God's presence, no longer as slaves, but as children of God Almighty. Therefore, we cannot afford to ever, ever, ever compromise or lose that gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are so grateful to be your children. Lord, every week we come and we rehearse the amazing message of the gospel, the good news of what you have done for us in and through Christ. And so, Lord, this morning we give glory and honor and praise to you. Father, this morning we rejoice in this one true gospel. Lord, this morning we want to pray that you would continue to help us to be a people who are gospel-centered, who guard this precious news that is a message that leads to freedom and deliverance from slavery and bondage. It leads to the freedom from sin and shame and guilt and condemnation, those things that plague us spiritually and emotionally. Lord, we don't ever want to backpedal away from that freedom. Lord, and it gives us the freedom to now actually obey the law from the heart. Again, not out of a slavish fear of punishment from God, but out of genuine love from complete acceptance by our Father in heaven. Now we can obey your law in the power of the Spirit. Oh Lord, what freedom that is to now obey the law from the heart. And God, we pray that you would continue to empower us to do exactly that. Because we know that in obedience to your law, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God, but it produces blessing in our life. And so, Lord, empower us to be obedient children, trusting your heart. And Father, we pray that our hearts would be knit to our brothers and sisters in this city, in this state, in this country, and around the world who faithfully preach the very same gospel, a gospel of the grace of God 
that is received through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, despite what other churches might look like, despite the way that they might try to approach ministry or do ministry, Lord, help us not to have some cultural superiority complex. Lord, help us to recognize that our unity is in Christ alone and in the gospel alone. And so help us to rejoice in the great work you do in these churches. Help us to be willing to pray for them and celebrate the work that you're doing and to partner with those churches as we have opportunities. So give us that humility. Give us that unity in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that the outworking of all of this would be that more people would come to faith in Jesus because of the great work you continue doing in our hearts. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.